The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. London is freezing over again. The two art fairs, Freeze London and Freeze Masters, are open and museums and galleries are opening their biggest shows of the year to coincide with a deluge of museum directors, curators, artists and, of course, collectors who are hitting town. Later in the podcast, I speak to the artist Ragnar Kjartensen and the curator Massimiliano Gioni about Strange Days, a new show featuring video art created by artists at the New Museum in New York over the last 10 years. I visit the White Cube Gallery to talk to the Colombian artist Doris Alcedo about her show there, and Louisa Buck talks to an artist in the Freeze London Fair's new section, Social Work. But first, to get a sense of the mood at these last Freeze art fairs before Britain leaves the European Union next March, I spoke to Melanie Gerlis, a columnist at the Financial Times and editor-at-large at the art newspaper at the fair. I'm standing here in the entranceway to Freeze Masters, just uh, in the calm before the rush begins for the second VIP day. I'm here with Melanie Gerlis. Melanie, tell me what the trends are of this year's Freeze Fairs, if there are any. Hi, Ben, uh, and thanks for having me again. Um, I think the main trend I've noticed really is at Freeze London. I think we're used to Freeze Masters being a very good-looking fair, but this year, I think Freeze London is quite a good-looking fair. Uh, and I think that's because certainly a lot of the mega galleries or the major galleries at the, the bottom end of the tent have gone for solo artist booths or pretty relatively curated booths um, and quite bold um, without being too dangerous. Uh-huh. That's, that's the interesting thing. The idea of solo artist booths plus risks is a sort of intriguing question to me. Are there potential risks for a big gallery putting on a solo booth because you uh, immediately exclude certain collectors who are in town to with their big bucks i think you are definitely taking a risk with a solo booth you're limiting choice uh and you know white cube i think for the first year i can remember has a solo booth of liu wei works and if you don't like his abstract style or you are not after Chinese artists for some reason then that's you just cross white cube off your list having said that two things really one the bigger galleries can afford the risk and you'll notice that actually the bottom end and the top end of Freeze London are solo booths because the top end it's the focused presentations where they have to be but the middle market can't really take that sort of risk so there the booths are a bit more bitty as usual um, but also, I don't think much of the work is that risky this year. I, I think it's sort of politics light. I think last year we saw quite a lot of harder-hitting, challenging works, whereas this year there's a lot more painting, um, there are fewer body parts. It seems <laughs> a little more gentle. One of the interesting things about the solo booth question for me is to what extent are fairs genuine marketplaces for galleries and to what extent is this essentially a massive advert in the middle about you know including very very notable artworks but in a way a kind of statement as opposed to a sort of place of sale i think both those points are very valid uh, actually the fair itself is during its four or five days of opening 
probably more of a marketing, a pricey marketing strategy. But the marketing works as in before you come to the fair, you send out a mailing or something probably more sophisticated these days to your clients. Uh, social media has been really played a part this year. So your sneak peeks on Instagram or watch this space. And that is for the works you're bringing to the fair, your works you're showing in your gallery. I mean, I think David Zwerner Gallery saved the Kerry James Marshall works until the day before the opening to keep that sense of excitement. So using the fair as a focal point to make sales. So you talk about the sort of solo booths at the top end and the and the sort of emerging end. So focus is full again of, of solo booths and, that, and focus still every year it feels full of liveliness. What about that, that mid range then? What, what, what sort of strategies can you detect at that level? And I suppose what we're talking about is, you know, um, galleries here with really notable artists, but not in that sort of mega gallery sort of stratospheric level, I suppose. I think there you're, it's becoming the galleries that have acquired some sort of brand. I mean, I noticed Hollybush Gardens was quite busy yesterday, even though they're probably more in the middle league. If you've had... Turner Prize winning artists um, it's probably more the brand of the gallery than the artists at that point and I think everyone else hopefully has done their marketing as well and told people to come along and Freeze is still a, a rarefied place to be um, it's not too big you probably do get you probably get more footfall in a Freeze tent than you do in your East End gallery um, or wherever um, so I think you know it's okay but you can certainly see they're playing it uh, safer now let's let's turn to masters where we are now. Um, this is the place where actually the, I mean I'm saying this um, despite knowing the fact that there's a Peter Doig on on Michael Verner's stand for 1.8 million. But but actually the really really stratospheric sums to use that word again are, are on are on the stands here at Freeze Masters, aren't there? Can you tell do you can you tell me what those sort of what the big figures are, as it were? Uh, certainly, yes, you're seeing at Freeze Masters a reflection of the general market trend, which is the priciest works are 20th century pieces. And um, yesterday, Christoph van der Weeg reported an $8 million sale of a Franz Klein uh, from Freeze Masters. But actually, what's rather lovely this year, Freeze Masters has a reputation um, for things not selling that quickly or everything taking a lot of time, possibly partly for that reason. Um, but it's lovely that some items that aren't 20th century have been selling. Uh, and I heard that Jorn Gunther has sold a Renaissance manuscript, um, Book of Hours, a wedding, Sforza Milan Book of Hours, um, for 3 million euros. And that's actually quite exciting. And I think this year, Freeze Masters feels like it's selling faster than usual. Can you account for that for any reason? Why would that be? Was it, is that... I mean, it's it's now a reasonably established fair. It's been going. What, how, 2012, I think, was the first. Yes, I think exactly. It's its is seventh it, year. Is it just that people are getting used to the market and therefore able to target collectors more? Are different collectors coming in? I think it might just be following a general market trend. I think people are quite revisionist and looking backwards. And actually, if you are going to spend seven figures. Are you going to spend it on a younger living artist who's yet to prove their worth? Or do you come to Freeze Masters and you look at people have amazing documentation and exhibition history and that suddenly feels more a safer place for your money? I'm not that seasoned an art fair goer. I tend to do these London fairs but don't really see many of the others. I, to my great surprise, find Freeze Masters 
a quite pleasurable experience. It, it, it's an enjoyable way to see art across various periods and across centuries. How do you feel it compares to other fairs of its ilk? I think Freeze Masters actually gave other fairs. There aren't that many older art fairs uh, on the circuit, but I think Freeze Masters gave them all a bit of a shake-up. Um, you've obviously got Tefaf Maastricht, which is a very well-known uh, 40-year-old uh, art fair that has set the benchmark till now and probably still for older objects is the first place people want to go. But it had, has had to pull its socks up a bit since Freeze Masters in terms of its presentation as much as anything else. Uh, but also they then set up two smaller art fairs in New York and that again I think is changing the system. Those are gorgeous fairs and it is as you say quite unusual to think I'm loving this art fair but I get that sense of Freeze Masters as you do and I get that sense at the small Tefa fairs. Now, can we talk a little bit about the wider social environment? This is the last, these are the last freeze fairs before Britain leaves the European Union as it is scheduled to in March, barring any late intervention. And we must pray for this to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Annunciation moment. <laughs> um, it, 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 how able are we? There's so much uncertainty, obviously, around the economics around Brexit. But how are we able to make any sort of kind of judgment about what effect Brexit might have on the freeze fares, for instance? I think we can make a judgment about London, um, which is that it doesn't feel like a very comfortable thing to be happening to that. You're here in this city this week. Uh, most of the conversations you hear aren't in English, and that's not just the visitors, that's the gallerists, the artists, the journalists, this whole system around the London art market. Uh, and certainly, you know, there was an art tactic report out last week that showed that consumer confidence in this market, in the art market, has fallen, or collector confidence has fallen by about 24% in the first six months of the year. And it is the political backdrop, it's Brexit, it's Trump in China that people are concerned about. And I just think the uncertainty of it, the issues with VAT, I mean, at the moment, we people are trading goods across Europe without having to fill in lots of paperwork and without having to pay lots of money. That would it makes a huge difference if in six months' time that's not the case. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the voice of, of doom and, you know, like anything, we'll get by. But I don't think it's great for this thriving market and this feels like a sort of lost hurrah. <laughs> Just, I mean, our, our, our listeners will probably know that the falling pound, the pound fell immediately after the vote for the vote to leave the European Union. And that has, to a certain degree, helped um, people from outside the UK buying art in the UK. The weak pound is, is helpful in that respect. Is, is, is an even weaker, if, can the pound keep getting weaker and will it still be a potentially positive thing for an international collector? It, it, the weaker pound definitely makes things cheaper here and that is a perfectly good game that people are playing uh, and it brings people to the UK but you know the same is true of Turkey it doesn't necessarily mean we want to be in that political position 
I also think you've seen since that the biggest sales, the huge and you know four hundred and fifty million dollar sales, have all happened in New York. So maybe it's giving the market that we have here a bit of a boost, but the market that we have here is shrinking. I think one of the one of the things about the Freeze Art Fairs is that is that they have tapped into a moment where partly because of financial services, London is at the centre of Europe in ter- in terms of economically. So even if we're not talking pure economics. Th- the the image of London as an open place for people from Europe is inevitably ch- changed because of what happened in 2016. Is that is is it, it that sort of reputational damage to London that might actually be more significant than what happens to the pound and happens happens in? So I agree. We're in the we're in the art world, and a lot of our values and judgments are based on the way we feel. A lot of it is not something you can put a figure on or an economic explanation on, and confidence um, dictates what you buy or how willing you feel to buy and spend a lot of money and at the moment if you're feeling you don't feel confident if you don't feel London is a good place to visit that does inevitably take some of the the joy and bubble out of this market Uh, but nonetheless at the moment this year I'm sensing it, it feels quite buoyant the people seem quite happy the dealers seem happy collectors seem like they're engaging I haven't had the same flood of sales news. Now that could just be because people are so busy selling, they're not (laughs) telling me. Uh, But I doubt it. I I think there's been some nice institutional buying, but that would happen anyway. But that's, you know, hats off to Freeze for sorting that out, sorting out Tate and the Contemporary Art Society uh, and Camden Arts Centre. These are, you know, lovely little things. But those big private gazillions of dollars flying off a booth you know on the first day doesn't seem to have happened this year um certainly less at freeze london at freeze masters is a is a lower bar to to beat but i just i don't get a sense that it's crazy but i think everyone is having a good time melanie thank you very much you're welcome Now, away from the fairs in Regent's Park, numerous galleries are, as ever, presenting major shows of some of their best artists. Among the most ambitious is an exhibition of Doris Salcedo's work at White Cube. It features Palimpsest, a work initially made for the Palacio de Cristal in Madrid, in which the names of over 300 people who have died in attempting to reach Europe from Africa or the Middle East appear on a floor of rectangular stone slabs filling the space. Their names are written either in sand or in slowly forming droplets of water. She also shows Tabula Rasa, a series of table sculptures addressing sexual violence. I went to White Cube to meet her. Doris, let's begin by talking about Palimpsest. It was a work which was a long time in the making, wasn't it? Yeah. Palimpsest took me five years. I began in uh, 2013 uh, researching, looking for the names and trying to as well, from the very beginning, trying to work uh, technically a way of making the earth cry the names that we are unable to remember, that nobody cries. So I, I, I knew this piece needed, I needed to cry. The piece needed to cry uh, forgotten lives. Tell me about what led you to think about individuals and uh, why you felt it was so important to see these individual names. I was interviewing mothers who have who lost their only child, and for them, the name was absolutely essential. The name brought all the clarity and and beauty of the life. So I 
could not uh, move away from these names uh, because I always try to be faithful to what the victim uh, the, or the mourner uh, tells me. So the testimony is really what I what what I what forced me to choose materials or to do a work. That's why my work changes varies so much in terms of materials. Tell me about how you found the names, because I understand it was quite a laborious and at times frustrated process. Yeah, well, uh, I, I I thought I would begin by the obvious, which was asking uh, Red Cross or the European Union for names. Uh, I knew they had a list of 17,000 names, and I requested them, but nobody paid attention. I think for them, thinking of a Colombian person requesting information was totally odd, as though we had no right to mourn these names. And actually, for me, it's very important to, to create this triangle that is all... Uh, people coming from the Middle East or coming from Europe, from from Africa, coming to Europe, and then somebody else in Colombia, a group of people in Colombia, far away, being able to mourn those lives, caring about those lives. Uh, and so... Since I couldn't get them that way, we start visiting cemeteries in Africa and, and, and Italy. And then uh, at that time, uh, Syrian press was very active reporting this death, as well as Turkish press. So at the end, I took the names from the press. Uh, we were really uh, sweeping Western press as well and, and, and those sources. Did you have to verify the names? I mean, yes, I, I, yes. It had to be. It had to. I'm using names that I found twice in the public domain. It had to be found twice to confirm and then get uh, translators, official translator, to make sure the spelling was was right. Yes. And tell me about the form in which the words appear, because they appear to be. It appears as if the ground is sort of crying these names. Well, uh, there are two layers of name. The first layer of name is written in sand. It is barely visible. It is the, uh, the work of oblivion has already is, is already in its way. And then on top of that, uh, there are little drops of water that uh, through dots start coming out to the surface. They emerge to the surface, slowly join together to write the names of more recent victims, victims who, who drowned between 2011 and 2016. And they, then the name, then you can read the name, you can feel the, almost feel the presence of the victim. And then when the presence is there, then the name is gone again. So it's a persistent piece. And then it cries the name again and again and again with the persistence of a person in mourning. But at the same time, you're reflecting the fact that these names are often not even reported in the first place, but then are also quickly forgotten in narratives around immigration. Yeah, well, we are very good. Humanity is very good at forgetting. Uh, willful ignorance is we have mastered willful ignorance. So we decide not to see. So all these names, all these lives have been drawn into, have been taken uh, like nothing, like something normal, like it, it had been described in our everyday life as, as a fact of life. And it should not be like that. I think that's the thing is that it seems to me that this is a work of protest as much as 
a, a kind of means of depicting the act of mourning or a means of uh, sort of respect for mourning. Yeah, I think it's an act of resistance. It is an act of mourning, but it's an act of resistance. Um, these names should not be forgotten. So the piece will bring these names out every every 10, every 5, 15. It varies, the tempo varies, but, but it, it, the names come out again. It is persistent. So for that reason, I think it is an act of resistance. The subject of immigration has been a crucial subject in your work. For instance, Shibboleth for the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern was very much concerned with this yeah. with this subject. Tell me why you feel uh, it's so important to address this subject. Well, I think this it is undoubtedly the most important issue of our time. We have uh, like over 60 million people who have been uprooted violently uh, uprooted from their from their places, so we have millions of internally displaced people and millions of people of of of, of uh, migrants and refugees who have pe- millions. I mean, people who have no papers, who have not acknowledged. So we know we we sort of understand that they are alive, that they they breathe and that they might need food, but we don't understand that they have a life, a life that where they can uh, love somebody or somebody love them or they have dreams or aspirations, that is completely ignored. We see them less than animals, I think. That, that's certainly true in a rhetoric which has emerged in populist uh, politics and, and, and has grown, sadly grown very prominent in recent years. Is it important to you to present palimpsest in places where a lot of that rhetoric is present? For instance, it first appeared in Spain, yeah. at the, uh, in Madrid. In, you're now showing it in London, which has been engulfed by populist voices about immigration. It is absolutely essential for me to show this, this piece in those places, because it is where the, these lives need to be acknowledged, where we must all learn to grieve these lives. They were alive. And if we were, I bet, if we were in the same position as these people are in their country of origin, then we will need, we would have lived. We would have done exactly the same thing. And also it is important to remind people that this is, that this, this migration is a result of colonialism, of imperialism. So it comes around. It is, it is, it is the, the circle is closing. And that is not acknowledged. It's so easy to forget history and to remember just the latest event. It's so, it's very convenient. So I like to think, when I think of migration, I think of imperialism and how people were forced to live. Tell me about the technical process of making this work. It is an insane crazy process. <laughs> it is a third world, low budget process. Uh, we created, we made the computer, the brains in our studio by ourselves uh, because I don't have access to a high technology. And uh, it is, so the piece doesn't work properly always. And I think that is quite beautiful because it is the difficulty it's like you see the name, you see the drops coming out, and sometimes the name is not completely written. It's not a perfect working machine. It is, it is a piece that, that, so, that struggles to write, struggles to function, 
And I think it's a very important aspect of the piece. So it is technical, but as well, it becomes a conceptually important part of the of the work. But is it right that you took a long time trying to get the right quantity of water so that it did, in fact, resemble a tear? Is that right? It is. It took me five years. <laughs> it took me five years and a team of 30 people, uh, hydraulic engineers and, and chemists and I mean, you name it. It's a huge team. And we failed on daily basis uh, because uh, the dignity with which the name is written the clarity with which the name is written is essential because I don't want to be disrespectful. It's not any name. It is the name that refers to a life. So the beauty of that life should be reflected on that name. So it was a huge struggle to get uh, the amount, the perfect amount of water. So the timing is essential in this piece. You're also showing here a work called Tabula Rasa, which involves several tables, which when you first approach them, they appear like normal or if old tables, but when you but when you get closer, they seem to experience some sort of violence. Uh, Tabula Rasa um, came from a series of interviews that I've been conducting in the past three years of women who were raped in the context of the Colombian War, um, which means that some of them were sex slaves, uh, so they were profoundly wounded. I understood that pain and the trauma that they suffer on the first interview I conducted. But I couldn't understand, I, and I cannot understand rape. I think it's totally irrational. And so I kept doing it and doing it and got interviewing and interviewing and interviewing hundreds of victims. And at the end, I realized that what was common among all of them is the difficulty of putting their life back together. Uh, rape is a murder where the, li- where the body continues to live, but the person is absolutely destroyed, killed, and how they build themselves out of nothing. And every day, an everyday act is a, is a struggle for them. How they go through breakfast, how they manage to go to work, how they, the flashback don't affect what is the work they, whatever work they are. So I found that that difficulty could be equal only to the splinter in a table, to teeny tiny parts and then gluing this uh, jigsaw puzzle all back together as the, uh, so as though they look like a, like, a, like a normal table and yet it is not a normal table. It, you cannot eat on them, you cannot write on them, you cannot use them. But, but, but the wound is there as I'm sure we have all crossed in our lives women who have been raped or abused. And we don't know, but the scars are there. So we should learn to see the scars in a different way. You've used domestic furniture throughout the history of your work. What is so sort of redolent or powerful about such sort of humdrum items in in, in dealing with uh, very troubling issues? Well, uh, I come from Colombia, so the image, certain image of poverty is very, these, these tables are clearly not, not really poor. And so I, I want to mark that. Uh, I need, I think everyday objects, uh, of course, are a reference for the human body and it's, it marks its absence. So tables and chairs 
clearly uh, <clears throat> denote the absence of the of the body. But in this case, I decided to use tables because tables are good metaphors for women. In this gender society, uh, women are about are taught to give, and men are taught and emboldened to take. See, um, and I think uh, tables give. So, in that sense, I thought that they were good metaphors for, for women. Would you say that your work over the years has been a consistent aim to explore human rights and the denial of human rights? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but more precisely, uh, I do struggle to convey the testimonies I have been given. So, I'm obsessively... Uh, like I, I'm always dealing with human rights issues, but every time I try to be more precise, how do I perceive the victim? And always from the perspective of the victim, not not from the perspective of the of the perpetrator. So how fragile and how beautiful and how delicate these lives are. Um, that's why uh, there are always images of beauty uh, embedded in terrible acts, and it is because. I have to dignify these victims. So, in a way, that all that is present in my work, but I wish, I just wish, each piece is radically different from the other, and the use of materials and the shape and everything, because I'm trying to be faithful and to honor single experiences. What can art do that investigative journalism can't? Because a lot of your processes, interviewing people, recording their testimonies, relate to a sort of journalistic experience. Yeah. Why, why translate it into art as opposed to reportage? Um, Jean-Luc Nancy says that uh, in art, an event and eternity collide in the beauty of an image. And I think that's what art should be doing. It's not just one specific life not just one specific experience, but then human experience as such. So you have to, you have to, uh, what I do is I collect information just as a journalist or a detective will do. And then I try to bring that into a neutral, uh, silent image. And at that moment, I think that image explodes into something that is more universal and not specific. So that's why it's different from art. The image uh, art should do should be an image that is presented at a distance, so distant that it almost becomes an it almost becomes an absent. Doris, thank you so much. Thank you. And you can see Doris Salcedo's exhibition at White Cube in Bermondsey until the 11th of November. I'll be back with more artist interviews after this. The Japanese-French artist Leonard Fujita was a friend of Modigliani and Soutine in 1920s Paris, a propagandist with the Japanese army in the 1930s and destitute in the 1940s. Until, that is, he reinvented himself in New York, where he produced some of the most intriguing works of the 20th century. His painting La Fête d'Anniversaire, which comes to Bonham's Impressionist and Modern Art Sale in London on the 11th of October, is a case in point. One of a series that's based on the fables of La Fontaine, the painting's been described by Bonham's global head of Impressionist and Modern Art, India Phillips, as, quote, one of his most important paintings, a strange and powerful work from the very moment of the artist's post-war rebirth. 
Purchased in Paris in 1950 by a private French collector, it's not been seen in public for more than 70 years. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the new museum in New York has temporarily taken root in London, in an ambitious show featuring 21 video works that have been shown at the new museum in the last 10 years. Strange Days, Memories of the Future includes important works by Khalil Joseph, John O'Confra, Camille Onro and Ryan Tricartin, among other leading figures. It's a partnership with the Store X, the venue on the Strand in London which has become a regular home for the curatorial ambitions of the Vinyl Factory, prolific commissioners of contemporary artworks and spectacular group shows. First, I met with the artist Ragnar Kjartansson, who's showing his work The Long Sorrow, featuring the American rock band The National playing their melancholic song Sorrow repeatedly, with no breaks, over six hours. Ragnar, the work that's in this exhibition is a lot of sorrow in which you somehow convince the National to play their song Sorrow for six hours straight. Can you tell me a bit about how on earth that happened? It was actually, you know, yeah, it was actually weirdly easy <laughs> to convince them. Probably because also, like, I mean, I it was just like one of those, I mean, I often, like, you know, come up with ideas and write some people on email and maybe people just say like no way and 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 like in this in this case it was just like yes yes we're we're up for it like right away <laughs> did it have to be sorrow i mean yeah it had to be sorrow and they because they they were also totally up for it because it was sorrow because musically it made so much sense to them because the sorrow this the song has this kind of circular repetition within itself that is like a song that just can go on forever and i think also it had it had quite an impact that like i because i I like my my friend Nico Muli, this composer who who's also also a friend of them. So he's like this mutual friend that 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 recommended that you know that just kind of pitched the idea to them. So I think that I think that had a really big effect. So they knew that you had some sort of musical integrity. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So like you say, okay, if Nico says says he's cool. He must be cool, or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> now, um, did you give them any stage directions? Because watching it. I'm intrigued by... It's one of those pieces which, as you watch, you, you know it's a durational piece and you see all sorts of incident happening. But, did, but how much of it is directed and how much of it is completely natural? Um, there was no directing except... Kind of mutually, we all agreed that it was important not to... Uh, you know, to repeat the song, really, and not make it a jam session. That was sort of the only... That was sort of the only thing we talked about and they they, like I talked about with them and they of course like they they really agreed is that 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 musically it should always just try they should try and do it sort of the same but of course there come variations within that so that was the only direction and nothing nothing else really (laughs) and and, and so tell me why sorry sorrow from the point of view of content as well I mean you've spoken about the form this sort of circular form yeah Tell me about the content of Sorrow and why that was significant. Yeah, the content is really significant. And that's also probably why I fell in love with the song in the first place. Because when I, re- when I had the idea to do the piece, I had already listened to this song maybe 800 times. <laughs> you know, while doing the dishes, while walking 
out while driving in my car. All this. This is a song that really became the soundtrack. And all the, this whole album, High Violet, really became a soundtrack of my life. And and uh, and just just the kind of the sheer kind of beautiful melancholy of this song. I've always thought of it as kind of the you know kind of the this the center point of the album really that 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 it's because it's so it depicts sorrow and like and so, or melancholia in such a beautiful way because it's like um it's sort of like like victor hugo said that melancholia is the joy of being sad and there's something like so sad and beautiful and heartfelt about the song but also it's joyful and and I think also that was, that also reminded me of like this, the Shelley quote that used to be on the back of a of a Cure album, Wish I had when I was a teenager. And that, I think that I think that quote actually had a huge effect on my art in general, which was just like our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought. And and this is really a song like that. It's this really sad thought, but it's so well said. I mean, lines like you know. Sorrow is a girl inside my cake. Yeah, and it's it and it's sorrow is in my honey. It's in my milk. It's, I think it's, and and uh, Matt Matt Berninger is. I think he's just such a, such a really good poet. Actually, right. I consider him a poet. I mean, and did you? Although did he's you just a pop musician. <laughs> 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 did you? Did you want to, in a way, test what playing that song for six hours? might do to that song and might do to that authenticity and might do to that um, that very rich emotion of the song that it somehow might wear it out no I did I did not have the feeling that I was going to test it I just like I just felt like you know you know this is just I just need, need to put this into marble <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of the feeling I just wanted to like to do and to do actually turn the song into the form of an art piece because I was like, and I always knew that, like, from the attitude of the band and the element of the song, that this was just going to be, you know, this, well, that this was the song was not gonna get boring or weary, or it was just gonna, it was just gonna build with time. So I was very, I was very kind of. No, I did not feel very experimental when doing it. I felt like, you know, I'm just going, to, I'm going to sculpt the statue of Al- Apollo into marble and. <laughs> That's just quite what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 you've explored through durational works in the past the, the idea of sorrow. So, you know, thinking about that, that Shelley quote. And in the, in the work God, for instance, you personally sing a line, very beautifully, I have to say, over and over about sorrow conquering happiness. Yeah. Yeah, that was like, yeah, that was... I remember that was a line that just came when I was doing a you know a concert with my band myself one you know many many years ago. I remember I was just like all fired up and and drunk and like wearing glittery glittery underpants and <laughs> and I remember I just like suddenly started screaming over the audience like sorrow conquers happiness <laughs> and then the whole audience went like sorrow conquers happiness <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and you then were I, drunk on power. Yeah, <laughs> I was drunk on power totally, <laughs> and and then uh, then that became that piece. And and I mean, I think I think also like, you know, maybe it's just that simple. Like us, because I was listening to the Cure as a teenager. Like sorrow has always kind of been a threat in my work, 
Yeah. As it, as it, as it creates something, something in us that, as the notion of melancholia creates something that that makes me happy. You know, in creating, it's like it's like a feeling that that yeah that I that I'm kind of always searching for in my works. But you're also aware of um, uh, of cliche and the idea of you know these are that you know the the, the the national song pushes pushes on the edges of cliche. I think it sort of just stays this side of it, but it, but it, it ventures into that territory. And and a lot of your work deliberately plays with cliches, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they also like yeah they, that's also like what we sort of have a lot in common. Like they play with the cliche also a lot. I mean, they're like this kind of indie rock band cliche. But then they are actually something more when you look under the surface, which is yeah, which which is why I kind of totally became flabbergasted about them. Like, but uh, uh, then the uh, the uh, yeah, because I always I always think cliches are so interesting because they are like like my friend Magnus Sigurdsson said, the cliche is the ultimate expression, and he. <laughs> It was the name of a work he did where he was like naked with a finger up his butt <laughs> and a cigar in his hand. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> and, and because there's the truth in the cliche, of course, because it's somehow, it's like, it's like tourist places, you know. Like I live in a country which is a tourist country, I mean, now. And the tourists go to the most beautiful places, you know. <laughs> It's no, it's no, it's no, uh, you know, it, they are tourist places for a reason. Yeah. And, and cliches are cliches for a reason. There's something really, uh, really, uh, there's a common thread in our, in our culture that creates the cliche. And, and I'm just uh, interested in looking at it and kind of, yeah, trying to understand the cliche. And that's the way that you subvert cliches seems to me to be at the core of your work. This idea that, for instance, in The Visitors, you've got a lot of lonely musicians sitting in rooms, which is a massive cliche. You, you yourself in the bath, yeah. sort of singing this melancholy song. You know. But but ultimately, it's a really redemptive work because it is about a collective playing together and this lovely ending where you all run off into the sunset sort of thing. So, there's all, again, again, The Visitors plays with cliche, but, but you, as well as sort of... Uh, acknowledging their their presence, you kind of subvert them, don't you? Yeah, t- yeah. I like, it's true. Like I, I always like when I'm making the works, I'm like always aware that this is such cliche, and it's always scary when you know, like because it always. But I'm always hopeful that something, like that the the X factor, <laughs> happens, that something, some that something subverts it or something. Something interesting happens when you go all the way in the cliche. That's, I think, that I, I work a lot with that, actually. Ragnar, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. I also met with Massimiliano Gioni of the New Museum, who's curated the show. And before our conversation, you'll hear an excerpt from Flypaper, a work by the artist Khalil Joseph. Massimiliano, tell me about the genesis of this exhibition. 
the exhibition was born from an invitation from uh, uh, Mark Wadwa and the Storex and the Vinyl Factory. Uh, we got to know them, or I got to know them, uh, I believe in 2016, uh, because at the time we invited Khalil Joseph to uh, make a new piece for the new spaces of the new museum downstairs where we had a temporary expansion and uh, he was the first artist that we invited for this new series of new productions uh, and his films are often complicated and and, uh, and quite ambitious so he needed also extra support and the vinyl factory had known Khalil uh, because of the show the Hayward Gallery, the Infinite Mix, and so uh, they came on board to co-produce the piece, which was incredibly helpful, and I think they were happy with the collaboration, and uh, and so at the time they invited me to, to come and see the store and to think of an exhibition, and you know, the Infinite Mix had become such a great uh, model, and, uh, and so I started thinking of a show, first of all, they would focus on video and new media which is also very much in keeping with the interest of the the vinyl factory um, and that also works very well for this type of architecture you know more than a borrowed paintings and and so on um, and uh, yeah and so that's how the show came about and then we started thinking about on one hand we had this interesting anniversary because it's you know the museum opened in december 2007 so last year it was 10 years plus 40 years since the 70s, since the new museum was created. And, and it was now this year, 10 years that we were in the new building. So I thought there was an, it, it, there were two factors that were kind of inspiring. One, this coincidence, and uh, if you will, a, a sort of celebratory occasion. And on the other, the piece by um, Khalil Joseph, which I thought encapsulated a certain... Uh, sensibility that was shared by many younger artists working in video today. What is that sensibility? Uh, well, it's uh, the grandchildren of Chris Marker, let's say. It's, uh, you know, uh, um, so not that we need SA, to... F- SA film is, a, is, is, is a, yeah. an enduring medium and it's being repurposed and it's, uh, by all sorts of artists. If you think in the last 10-15 years it's become sort of resuscitated, you know, Hito Sterl is not in this show because we hadn't shown her at the new museum even though you know she's a friend we've worked together a long time since 2004 actually but she's another example of an artist working on cinema verite and uh, um, so I think you know this sounds very big picture but uh, in the 90s there was you know the generation of Pierre Wig, Parreno, in a sense also Pipilotirist, Douglas Gordon they were deconstructing Hollywood or the spectacle of cinema through a kind of structural approach so taking apart you know the remake was a typical tool of the time the the repetition or you know 24 hour cycle slowing things down or making their own films um, then at the beginning of 2000 there is the whole documentary turn uh, and some of the artists in the show like Henry Sala or you know Steve McQueen who's not in the show they kind of instead of looking at the VCR as a tool they look at the camera and at reality I think now you know people like Alil Joseph and uh, even John Akonfra and uh, you know many of the artists in this show are perhaps combining the two things uh, or, or they are resuscitating the idea of the cinema verite, the reportage but they do it with uh, archival material and they do it with a combination of confessional 
material and uh, film material. Uh, I think the, the crucial question becomes, and this probably would take three or four or five <laughs> bigger shows, uh, it's the question of truth in images, which many of these artists confront. Um, and that connects you know, to the question of the reportage and uh, of witnessing. And on the other end of the spectrum, I think, um, which is mainly represented, let's say, by Ryan Trecartin and by that group of artists that instead look more at technology as a defining factor of, factor of this new century, uh, you have an approach to reality that is completely transformed by technology and subjectivity that is transformed by technology. I use an expression that I, I borrow from James Wood, the, the, the literary critic, who had spoken of hysterical realism, so a type of realism in, in which technology accelerates uh, expressions and uh, and uh, and particularly language. No, the, the, these videos are sort of perpetual motion machines in which everybody talks and talks and talks, which is also, unfortunately, what seems to be the, the, the driving industry of our life today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, what's interesting, I think, walking through the show is that to talk about video art is uh, extraordinarily reductive in a way because actually video art is now encompassing so many technologies, so many means of expression, so many uses of material whether that that be found or self-generated. Yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's a, at this point, common sense, but uh, the screen, particularly the computer screen and the screen of the phone, not the silver screen as Hollywood, but the screen, uh, the digital screen is the locus of imagination of the 21st century. You know, it's the locus where we construct our identity, where we look at the world where the world gets both simplified and amplified and and that is uh, present in all of the works in the show and in many other works done today and that results in this idea that i think is also what you mean that it's no longer video art it's somewhat an existential condition that is shared by everybody and uh, and you see throughout the show you know there are moments in which people look at phones people look at cameras there is this continuous uh, sense that uh, yes the phone and the screen are uh, um, you know what probably the city was in the 50s or at the beginning of the 20th century it's really the space where imagination both runs wild and where desires are staged um, I think something that also is a shared sensibility that again maybe surfaces in the work of Khalil is the way in which images throughout the show and I don't know if that's done well or not but I wanted them to somehow, uh, somehow float to the surface a bit as dreams you know it's mm. I saw the Pierre Wig show yesterday and it's an interesting shift also in his own work that it's from let's say the remake or from the structural analysis to now this more introspective idea of images and mental images and I wanted in in our show this kind of confusion between what's outside and what's inside and and that is I think another uh, characteristic of much of the work being done today uh, which could also be a rather depressing uh, revelation that basically the, the deeper you look in your head and in the unconscious the more you realize that it's already mediated you know <laughs> it's right. like you're thinking you're dreaming but you're actually 
seeing images from TV or, or from your phone. And, and so I think that's also a, a characteristic that it's shared by many of the artists in the show. I'm really conscious sitting here that we have this kind of thunderous bass <laughs> coming out through the floor. <laughs> and actually, it's, a, it's, it's as much, I mean, of course, it's a film about, about the screen and, Im, and the image, but absolutely about sound too, right? Yeah. There are so many forms of sound. There's, music is so prominent. Yeah. Music is very actively in video art in a way that in previous generations it may it not have been. Yeah, yeah I think, uh, you know, throughout the show, beyond also Khalil's piece, uh, you know, a kind of sub-theme, which is not also particularly original, has been very much... Uh, discussed in, in the last 10-15 uh, years um, not only is music but the body dancing no? the, the, a few years ago the, you remember there was the whole uh, fashion of you know the, the exhibitions about dance uh, and video you know dance with camera was a show at the ICA in Philadelphia the title of which I think encapsulated many debates around that currently there is a show at MoMA about Judson uh, dance but it's mainly also a show about the filming of dance I think in this exhibition you know if you look at Kali Spooner if you look at uh, Daria Martin uh, if you look at Wood Sang or uh, Asan Khan with a you know incredible piece Jewel there is this um, if on one hand you have the unconscious that is more and more mediated on the other the, it seems like the the only moment in which people find their bodies is in dancing and so there is this kind of visceral experience of dance which is actually very choreographed you know it's not people just freaking out but but i think it's a, a desire for um, embodiment in a sense that maybe is a reaction to this dematerialization of the self that technology uh, has brought us to i think another thing about the show is that it's it, it's profoundly international and one of the yeah. interesting things about that is that you do have shared languages across borders but you yeah. also have distinctive qualities right through right the way through the show i yeah. think that's a really fascinating aspect of this kind of collage of languages yeah, yeah and that was a if you will a deliberate choice even more than others like uh, uh, you know not that the show is conceived with infinite mix in mind but certainly that example was very present in my mind and so for example I didn't want to have the sense of a small selection which uh, sometimes I find a bit reductive you know with all due respect it was a fantastic show but I don't like when it's like the 10 artists I you know I'm more attracted to to more uh, complex narratives so I always joke also my curatorial motto is borrowed from uh, you know, a famous exchange between Lou Reed and Andy Warhol when Lou Reed asked Warhol if the songs of the Velvet Underground were too long, Warhol famously said, always leave them wanting less. Uh, and that's my, <laughs> my curatorial motto. So, you know, I like shows that I just go on and on and on. And, um, and, and But that was a deliberate choice. You know, it should be big enough that, that in a sense you lose yourself in it. Uh, and on the other hand, we really wanted it to feel uh, and to be quite international. The, you know, there is a, that reflects also the new museum program and then reflects, you know, with the inclusion, for example, of uh, uh, works like Munir al-Sols or Mahamahum or Hassan Khan. Um, there is also a sense... Uh, of a history of culture that has dramatically changed in the West uh, in the last 10 years or so. You know, I don't think we can think of a short history of video art, whatever that's worth, without thinking also what has changed in, you know, in our borders, in, in, uh, um, in the world out there. So. Mr. Emiliano, thank you very much. Thank you.
Strange Days is at the Store X in London until the 9th of December. I'm now at the heart of the Freeze London Fair, where there's a really special section this year called Social Work. And one of the people involved in choosing the artists to be in this section is Louisa Buck, the contemporary art correspondent for the art newspaper. Louisa, tell me about that selection process. So it was a panel of about, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 of us, um, museum directors, writers, very illustrious people, and me. Um, all, all women. All all women, absolutely all women, who decided that yet again we wanted to have women at the centre of Freeze Art Fair, particularly because it's the anniversary this year of women's suffrage in England. So we, last year that was the, the, the section was called Sex Work and they were feminists of the 70s, very gently sexually explicit, hardcore work. This, this time we wanted to kind of carry on the story of, of women who emerged in the 80s and 90s and challenged the very male-dominated artwork then and it's called Social Work and the art Artists are Tina Keane, Bernie Searle, Mary Kelly, um, Nancy Spiro, Sonia Boyce, Ipek Duben. These artists, all very different, some of them different generations as well, but their work addresses feminist issues in multiple media, from tapestries to photographs to all sorts, but also extending it beyond to a form of activism, to a form of challenging the male-dominated market, the male-dominated world, and indeed other aspects of identity, politics, and so on. So it's a it's a broader span, but also a wonderfully focused set of eight booths, all each devoted to a single artist who are making these very powerful statements. The relevance of all this was brought home really powerfully to you yesterday when you showed Rose McGowan around the fair. That was so exciting, <laughs> yes. The freeze organisers said, would I, would I, as one of the selectors of, of social work, show Rose McGowan around? She was coming into the fair. I mean, I personal heroine and it was extraordinary because actually a lot of the women were on the stand Mary Kelly was on the stand, Bernie Searle was on the stand Tina, Tina Keane so, and Ipek Duben and so they were so excited to meet Rose and she's also a practising artist as well and she was thrilled to meet them and it turned out it was actually the first anniversary of the whole Weinstein horror breaking out and the setting up of hashtag me too so it couldn't be more appropriate to have her on the stand you know, talking, talking about you know, how it meant to her, she said it actually was the most empowering and the most kind of therapeutic thing for her to see all these great women of the past and of the present. Now I'm now going to hand it all over to you and you're going to speak to Ipek Dubin. Very exciting to have her here, Turkish artist who is really made an extraordinary stand that is rarely been seen in the UK before. So I wanted to ask you Ipek first of all about these two extraordinary works behind us which are beautifully painted empty dresses. Tell me about these. They represent a woman from uh, uh, the late 1970s, uh, a woman who uh, was part of a very large migration from Anatolian villages to the city. Uh, uh, and they would, uh, the, the women would be working as domestics in the houses. And this was when you came back to Turkey That's after right. studying after in New York? After many, many years. New York, I had not met this kind of uh, person uh, before. Uh, in Istanbul, so this was to me a very new phenomenon, and I was very curious about what and I And you saw. wanted to paint her, and she wouldn't let you. That's right, she thought it was rather sinful. Being uh, a devout Muslim. She, uh, yeah, a Muslim and a traditional woman, she was very ashamed of being shown like that, exhibited. So I um, bought a dress that she might wear, 
and uh, stuffed it with newspaper uh, and pinned it on the wall. And I made a, a series of 12 paintings called oh. Sherife, which is her name. Sherife is her name. And so to, was this to you at this point a kind of image of, of Turkish womanhood at that period? Actually, you know, <coughs> unconsciously it must have been mm. because my intention was to paint a woman. Yes, there was like, a, you know, kind of a lower middle class, working class woman. Um, who aren't often represented in not, art, absolutely. and certainly not then. Uh, nor are they, do they had, had their presence in the society. So it turned out to be a headless, shapeless, nameless, uh, you know, voiceless, iconic, iconic, uh, iconic image of a woman. And so this is the kind of starting point. And other works on the booth have images of you in them, multi-layered, bodily, but very much fragmented. I mean, you're making images of feminist images, but also images about your own identity as well, as a Turkish woman, as an artist, as a thinking woman in the world. Tell me a little about, about these works well, as well. Well, you know, in the 90s, the, uh, the work I did mainly in the 90s was about my identity. Uh, you know, the question was, uh, can there be a, a real a working synthesis between East and West? Mm. And uh, me being a modern woman uh, and a woman in an Islamic uh, uh, environment, uh, not, a, you know, not an Islamic state, but an Islamic environment, which is traditional, basically. And there I am, you know, a modern woman, very liberated woman. How do I, uh, you know, uh, do with it? How should I? How should I find a way? What does that mean? So I did a very subversive work during those years, representing using myself, my nude body, my face, my portrait. Uh, I did this book, which to me is a major breaking point for me as an artist called uh, Manuscript 1994. It's autobiographical, uh, visual text. And uh, there I, I try to place myself in an Islamic context uh, with my own personal interpretation of spirituality. Because that's what's so interesting about this social work section, I think, is that the eight artists, you and the seven others, they are feminist works, but they're also works that use feminism as a springboard into wider issues of identity, of, of poor status quo vis-a-vis -vis women, human rights, violation, all these things. And it seems that you're very much within that trajectory of using it as a, a form of activism, basically. Absolutely, but, you know, without necessarily identifying myself anyway at that point with a, a, a feminism. I didn't think of myself as a feminist, but I was. I was because I ended up really uh, voicing the, the, the lack of pre presence for women. And here we are now in the middle of an art fair with, with eight artists. Of course, many of the booths around here still have a very low representation of women, either on the booths or in the galleries tables. And of course, we're now living in this world of, of Me Too, this world of Islamic fundamentalism. I mean, how do you feel about having your work here, this past work, but in this very relevant present, it seems to me? Well, I feel really, really good about it in the sense that it has a global and international presence. I was waiting for this for a long time because, you know, this kind of thing was ignored in Turkey 
for various reasons, and it has been ignored when, during the years I was in New York, which was many, many years, and international biennials and so on and so forth until 2013 when this was an Istanbul biennial. So in a way, it's work from the past, but it's very much chimes with the present. Absolutely. It was a little bit too ahead of itself, uh, for Turkey anyway. But I, I always felt like I belonged to the New York, um, you know, um, New York. Well, now the times have caught up with you. Thank you very much, thank Ipek you, Thank you, And that's all for this week. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it and do also follow us on our new Twitter account at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can also find our main Twitter and Facebook accounts at The Art Newspaper and our Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to all our interviewees and special thanks this week to Will Fitzpatrick and Soho Radio. Next week, we'll have an interview with Rosalie Goldberg about her new book on performance art. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.